What's poppin' people? Welcome back to Sunday School. Sunday School is a show where we read through the Bible and we try to understand what God's Word means and how we can apply it to our lives. We've been reading through the Book of Romans, which is a book about the Gospel. And so far in the Book of Romans, we've finally gotten to what the Gospel actually is. Is. As I'm sure many of you have heard before from some pastor somewhere, maybe your own pastor, the word gospel means good news. And what is the good news, right? Well, the good news, according to Romans chapter 3 and 4 that we read in the last two episodes, the good news is that all people, no matter how evil they are, they can be redeemed. They can get right with God. And it doesn't come through repenting of your sins and trying to be a good person. Not to say that you shouldn't do that, but it doesn't come through that. It comes through putting our faith in Jesus Christ. See, Jesus, when he died, he made a peace offering to God on our behalf by his death. He died in our place for our sins so that instead of us being punished, he was punished for our sins. And this concept of Jesus dying for our sins on the cross, making a peace offering to God for us, that has led many Christians to say, Jesus died for you. And while that is true, it's a phrase that without context really makes no sense. You know, what does it mean that Jesus died for you. You know, so many atheists, when they hear this, they say, how could Jesus die for me? He lived 2,000 years ago. He didn't even know who I am. And that's what they say. And it's a good question, honestly, you know. How exactly can something that someone did 2,000 years ago have any effect on us other than the effect that anyone's actions have, like a butterfly effect, right? How could it possibly directly affect me? And Romans chapter 5 is going to answer that question. Now, it's going to be answering it towards the end. I'll have it time-stamped if you're watching it on YouTube. But Romans chapter 5 is answering this exact question. How is it that what Jesus did can affect us, even though Jesus didn't know us, and it has nothing to do with us? It's all about Jesus doing something, right? Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we make glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation works patience and patience works experience and experience hope and hope makes us not ashamed Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. That's something I really don't talk about on my channel very much. You know, I'm kind of like a doomsday, kind of doom and gloom preacher. (laughs) I don't know if I want to call myself a preacher, though, but I guess that's what I am. I'm I'm an evangelist in some sense. But something I don't talk about a lot is how much God loves you. But see, the fact is God really does love you. 
And when you really come to an understanding of how much God loves you, you will have this source of joy, right? This source of joy, this an end to depression. People want to know what's the cure to depression. The cure to depression is Jesus Christ. If you want proof that God loves you, a great book to read, and it might sound like a strange book to anyone who's read it before, but a great book to read is the book of Job. The book of Job I think is actually a very heartwarming, touching book. Most people think it's a book about nihilism, but I think it's actually a book of how much God cares about us. In the book of Job, it talks about how God is intimately aware of every mechanism that makes your body work. He is sitting there making sure that every atom stays in place and that every electron is revolving around the nucleus in those atoms and the protons stick together to the neutrons. He's holding my hand to my arm, making sure my hand doesn't fall off my arm, making sure my arm doesn't fall off my torso. God is paying close attention to you. And even more than that, that's something that he does for all people. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are if you are in the body of Christ, part of the church, God has adopted you into his family. We're adopted by God. That's the reason why in the Our Father prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray, we call him our father. It's not a statement about God creating the earth. It's a statement about God's adoption of us. As a Christian, you have been adopted by God. See, Jesus makes it very clear in John chapter 8, I know that for sure, that there are some people who are not God's children. People who are unsaved, who are living in sin, they are not God's children. Jesus says they are children of the devil. And I used to be a child of the devil. And any Christian who's alive today used to be a child of the devil. But I have been adopted by God. I have been taken in and I have been called his son. I am the son of God. And if you're a Christian, if you believe the gospel that Jesus rose from the dead, you are the son of God. And we're brothers. And we're brothers with Jesus. So when we know this love, right? We will glory in tribulations. And what does that mean, glory in tribulations? Jeez, that voice cracked, man. That was gross. But what does it mean to glory in tribulations, right? Well, a tribulation is basically a problem in your life. You know, a tribulation is like when you're down and out, when you get kicked out of your house, you couldn't make your loan payments or whatever, you're out on the streets, you're reaching into the rainy gutters to grab a dollar bill that fell in there. When you're down and out, when you're down bad, that's a tribulation. And it doesn't just have to be, you know, bad stuff that's like in incredibly bad. It can just be stuff that's, you know, marginally bad. Like a couple of months ago, I lost my YouTube channel. I got a community guideline strike for saying being gay is a sin. And it ended up uh, kicking me out of my YouTube channel for a month. And that was a tribulation, right? But Paul says when we know God, when we know how much God loves us, we're not going to be afraid when tribulation comes. We're not even going to be upset because we know 
that God is our father and like any good father God is care he cares about us and he's making sure that we're not going to get into anything that's too big for us to handle and since we know that in addition to him being our father he's also the person that makes all of this works that makes this water exist that makes these trees stay green that makes the sky blue and the sun shine we know that if this is our father then the bad things happening to us are in his control too. And that he's not allowing these things to tear us down, to make us kill ourselves, to make us depressed. He's not doing it for those reasons. He's doing it so that we can become patient, that we can become better people that are capable of dealing with struggles, dealing with others who are stupid, you know, dealing with people who are asinine, who insult you and being able to deal with it because we've gone through these tribulations and we're able to be patient. And through this patience that we learn, we also get experience. We experience how much God loves us through how he gets us out of these tribulations with time. And with that experience, hope. What is hope? Again, we all think we know what hope is. Hope is like uh, basically, you know, like this good feeling that you have, optimism. But that's not what hope is in the King James Bible. See, the King James Bible, something that you got to remember is that it was translated in 1611. And in 1611, words were used a little bit differently than they're used today. For example, the word perfect was not used to mean that you were without flaw. It just meant that you finished something. So the end of a movie is perfect. It is the perfection of that movie is the end of the movie. When it says Finn on screen, when it says the end, when this video is over and you see the uh, Sunday school logo and it says listen on Spotify and then it has the end screen where you can click on the next video. If you're watching it on YouTube, that is the video coming to perfection. And hope is one of these words that have changed their meanings. See, hope in the King James Bible is a word used in reference to something we have hope in. So, for Christians, we have hope. And what is our hope? Our hope is that we are going to be in heaven, that we're going to rise from the dead in the last day, that when God comes to judge the world, that he is going to rise us up and we're not going to face the judgment. And then after he judges the world, destroys the world, that we're going to inhabit the new earth that he creates in this sickly world's place, right? That's our hope. So that's the object of our hope. And what we do is we have faith in that hope. So we don't hope in the hope. As it says in Romans chapter 4, we believe in hope. Abraham believed against hope in hope. But so all these tribulations that we go through, all the bad things that you go through in your life, it gives us hope. It, it gives us an object of hope to have hope for. Right? And that hope is God's love. It is God's love that God truly does love us. And that's what we learn through all our tribulations. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure 
For a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commends his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The greatest proof of God's love is the death of Jesus. Right, as I talked about in the beginning of this episode, Jesus died for us. As it says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave up his only son, that whoever would believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God gave up his only son for us. Can you imagine what kind of love would drive you to give up your only son? I personally couldn't. Now, I might not be a father, right? I'm way too young for that. I have a father, and my father's told me what it's like to be a father. Obviously, I'm not talking about God. I'm talking about my biological dad. And my dad used to be a big gangster. You know, obviously, I'm not going to get into all the stuff that he used to do or anything like that. But, you know, you can just imagine a mafioso type of person in some sense. And he was a radical, right? He was a radical. And he risked his life every day getting in massive fights, getting in, you know, near-death experiences every day. It ended up uh, getting him sentenced to a prison sentence for 14 years. And thankfully, you know, my mom, who was his girlfriend at the time, stayed faithful to him. And after he got out of prison, they had me. And my dad tells me that, you know, before I had you, I had something to die for, right? I had my cause, I had my crew, I had my people to die for. But after I had you, I now had something to live for. A a saying that he said to me, and it was a very touching saying, is he said, uh, you know, I've worn many hats in my life and I've had many occupations. But the occupation I've been proudest to have is to be a father. He says the proudest day of his life is when he picked me up fresh out of my mom's womb. I know this might be a little vulgar, that statement. And he held me and he looked into my eyes. And to him, you know, family is the most important thing. And I can only imagine what it's like to hold your son in your hands and look into his eyes and see you. It must be an unimaginable experience and it must be the proudest day of your life, you know? I would assume, you know, if you become a father, you truly love your son, that you would sacrifice anything to make sure that your son lives. And so what kind of love would you have to have for somebody else that you that if your son and them were drowning in the lake, you would rescue them over your son. What kind of love must you have for someone that you would sacrifice your own son for someone else? I just can't imagine it. But it must be a great love. And the fact is, that's the love that God has for us. He loves us so much, wants us so much, that he was willing to give up his one and only begotten son for us. And what's even crazier to me is that we didn't have to do anything to earn that love. I didn't have to change my life. I didn't, I was still a sinner, 
when he died for me. I was still a sinner, but God was willing to sacrifice his son for me. And he's willing to sacrifice his son for you, even though you might be the most evil person in the world, because that's how great God's heart aches and longs to have you. Much more than now, being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Christ Jesus, by whom we have now received the atonement. It says here that we are justified by his blood and saved from wrath through him, right? If you guys have ever gone to a Protestant church before, I don't think they sing anything like this on a, in a Catholic church. I could be wrong. But if you ever went to a Protestant church, like I went to this Baptist church, it was, I forget what the name of the church was. But uh, I went there and they were singing this song that I thought was like very bizarre because it was so happy. It was like this like happy old timey song. And it was like, nothing but the blood of the lamb. You know, I, obviously that's not how it went, but it was like, dude, you're like singing about Jesus's blood being spilled all over us and washing us clean. And yeah, I thought that was like kind of vulgar and honestly, like a little bit disrespectful because I don't know. I have like a lot of reverence for the crucifixion, you know, and the suffering Jesus went through. And well, obviously, you know, it's, it's happy in the sense that he's bought our salvation. It's sad in a sense because, you know, he's literally dying and suffering like unimaginable pain to do that, you know, but, <laughs> but so they were singing this song and that's, and this verse is that song, right? We are justified by his blood. But I want to talk about what that word justified means because a lot of people have a lot of confusion about what justified means. People think that justified is a synonym for salvation. And for those of you that don't know what salvation is, salvation is what we receive when we believe in Jesus, right? When we believe in Jesus, that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead on the third day after he died. When we believe that, we are saved. What are we saved from? We are saved from the condemnation in hell. See, all people sin, they deserve to go to hell, but Jesus has saved us from the condemnation. He has saved us from the punishment. He has saved us from hell. But the fact is justification is not the same thing as salvation. And we know that's true because within this one sentence, it uses both of those words. Being now justified by his blood, we will be saved from wrath through him. If, justi if justified was the same as salvation, then this would be saying, being now saved by his blood, we will be saved from wrath. It doesn't make any sense. The word justified, I did a Bible study on that word. I have a 40 minute video talking about that. It was on James chapter two, which says faith without works is dead. And many people use that to refute faith alone salvation. So if you're not sure about faith alone, I would suggest you check out that video. But 
In that video, I talk about what the word justified means and what the Greek word that translates into justified, dikiao, means. And the word justify, a synonym for that word would be vindicated. The word justify, its definition is proven to be correct. Proven correct. To give you a little story, an analogy, so you can understand what the word justify means, think about the guy Robin Hood, right? You guys have heard that. You've watched a little movie with the fox guy and all that. We all know the story of Robin Hood, right? Robin Hood was this folk hero. Pretty sure he's made up, but he was this folk hero that lived in like medieval Renaissance England. And in medieval Renaissance England, the people were being oppressed by Jewish tax collectors, which were just totally ravaging the people doing brutal things to collect taxes from them and honestly stealing from people in many cases. And so Robin Hood seeing this injustice, he would go and steal from the rich, the tax collectors, and give the money back to the poor from which they stole the money from. Robin Hood, he's sinning, right? Thieving, stealing, it's a sin. And not only that, but it's a crime, right? And so one would say, in some sense, Robin Hood deserves to go to jail and deserves to go to hell because he is stealing. But in another sense, one could say that Robin Hood is justified in stealing, right? Because he's stealing from people who are evil, who are stealing from others, and he's just trying to give the money back that they stole. So Robin Hood is right to steal from these people, right? He's justified. Even though in any other circumstance, if he was stealing from anyone else, it would be wrong for him to steal because of the context, because of who in particular he's stealing from, he is justified in doing this otherwise immoral act. Right? So it says there that we are justified by Jesus's blood. And I haven't heard anyone teach on this before, so don't take take what I'm saying with a grain of salt, okay? <clears throat> this is something that is, from all I've seen coming out of my own mind, kind of just pulling this out of my, uh, you know what? The fact is we're all sinners, right? We've all done wrong things and we deserve to go to hell. But what I think this is saying is that somehow Jesus's blood was capable of making our otherwise sinful and wrong actions justified in the eyes of God. That we're sinners, but our sins are just and okay. God's okay with our sins because for some reason, Jesus's blood has made him okay with it. And he's coming back again. He's, he's really trying to annoy me. He's just ruining my day. Man. This guy, this freaking guy, he's just ruining my day. 24-7, bro. What is this guy on? He's gonna drop some Agent Orange on me. He's gonna kill me. So Jesus' death on the cross somehow is able to justify our sinful actions and make up for them and make them okay to God and make God be fine with them. But it doesn't just say that his death does something. It also says that his life does something. It says, now being reconciled, we will be saved by his life. See, Jesus's life played an important role in the salvational process. See, we can be justified for our sins. And this freaking guy, man. 
this dude. This dude. I want to kill this guy. I want to kill. <laughs> See, Jesus died for our sins, and he justified our sins in the eyes of God and made them okay to God. He made God no longer angry for our sins. But even if we have all of our evil deeds wiped away, the fact is we're still not going to make it to heaven. Now, again, take this all with a grain of salt. Lots of people would disagree with me. But it says in Romans chapter 3 that we read a couple episodes ago that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, other translations will translate that as the standard of God, but I believe that the King James Version is the best translation, and it translates the Greek into the glory of God. And what does that word glory mean? It, it means beauty, power, strength. Another way to put it that's a little bit cringe is that we have fallen short of the basedness of God. See, God, when he created us, wanted us to be based, red-pilled, awesome, right? He wanted us to be cool. He wanted us to be great people. He, he wanted Adam and Eve to be glorious. But we sin and we fall short of his glory. It says in the book of Proverbs that the thought of foolishness is sin. See, so just simply doing something foolish, doing the right thing, but not doing it to the best of your ability, that is a sin too. And that also keeps us out of heaven. And so even if we have all of our evil, explicitly wrong deeds wiped away, and we only have our correct deeds left, we're still not meeting God's standard. Because the good things that we do, we didn't do them good enough. But so Jesus' life that he lived, his righteous life, is able to make up for our failure our mediocre life. It's able to make up for our mediocrity, our failure to be based somehow. But like we asked at the beginning of the episode, how can someone else's life affect us? How can we be rewarded for someone else's good deeds? And so Paul gets into it. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many are dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded to many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, 
but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one. Jesus Christ. So as we talked about in the very first episode in this series, the story of Genesis, right? The story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and eating the fruit of knowledge of good and evil, that is an integral part to the concept of the Messiah and to the gospel. And without having an understanding of Genesis chapter 3 in particular, you cannot truly understand what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Right, to summarize that story, I won't go as in depth as I did in the first episode. Adam and Eve, they were created by God. They were gonna live forever in paradise in Eden in this garden with all these fruits where the animals wouldn't attack them, even the lions wouldn't attack them. But then they sinned, they ate a tree which God commanded them not to eat, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because of that, humanity was cursed. And they were cursed with death. But God made a promise to Eve that one day, one of her descendants, a woman, would be born. And she, when she gets old enough, would give birth without the need of a man, would have a virgin birth, give birth to a baby boy. And this baby boy would crush Satan, the one who made them sin under his foot and would restore humanity back to paradise. So when it says by one man sin entered into the world, that one man is Adam. What Paul's talking about here is the concept of original sin. Now, original sin is in the Bible, but most people's conception of original sin is not biblical. Most people's conception of original sin is that all people are destined to hell no matter how good of a person they are because Adam and Eve ate the fruit. And so we're going to be sentenced to hell, even the babies who have done nothing wrong, aborted babies, people who are victims, who haven't even had a chance to sin, they're going to hell. The Bible says this nowhere, right? When you read the Genesis story, Adam and Eve were not condemned to go to hell. They were condemned to die. And so all people who are descended from Adam and Eve, they will all die because of Adam's sin. And what Paul's saying is, how does this salvation work? How do we get rewarded for what Jesus did? Well, it's the same way how we get punished for what Adam did. We get punished for what Adam did in that we were in Adam Adam sinned, and since we're a part of the family lineage of Adam, we are punished for what Adam did. And so in the same way, if we're a part of the body of Christ, if we're in Christ and a part of his family line, we can be rewarded for what our ancestor, Jesus, did. It's a weird way to put it, but it's actually biblical, and we'll get into that in chapter 6. Now, some people might say, doesn't this violate God's moral code? that we're being punished for something our great, 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 great grandfather did. Because God says in the law that the sins of the father should not be held against the son and neither the sins of the son be held against the father. So how can we be punished for what Adam and Eve did? Someone gave this analogy and I thought it was a really smart analogy and it really helped me to understand it. Imagine there was this king of England all right, and he had one son that was going to 
gain the throne when he died. And that son had a brother. Now this brother of the prince, if the prince was to die, he would become the prince. So the brother of the prince is found out by the king to be conspiring to kill the prince. And so the king is angry at his son who's trying to kill the firstborn because of jealousy, who knows what. And so the king says to the prince's brother, you're done. You're kicked out of the royal family. You, you are out of the royal bloodline. The crown will never pass to you. And he exiles him out of England to Australia. Now, let's just say a few decades later, the prince becomes king. And a few years after that, the prince dies and he has no heirs. And let's just say that the prince's brother also died, but the prince's brother had heirs. Logically, you'd say, since there was no heir from the prince, it should go to the brother's children, right? Well, because the king kicked the brother out of the royal line, his children are no longer a part of it and they cannot become a king, even though they're the closest relatives. And so the same way we were inside of Adam when Adam got punished genetically, our genetic code was in there. And so we have been punished with Adam. But as Christians, we are no longer a part of Adam, but we are a part of Jesus. And so just like how we're punished for what Adam did, we can be rewarded for what Jesus did. Therefore, as by the offense of one came condemnation to all men, even so by righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that offense may abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound that as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So one last thing to talk about here is, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. See, you can be the greatest sinner. You can be evil. You can be a murderer, a rapist, a pedophile, horrible things. But God loves you so much that he's willing to overlook those sins if you would just put your trust in Jesus. His grace could be greater. His love could be greater than the greatest sin that you've committed. And if you just trust in Jesus, God would forgive you and God would accept you into his family and call you his son. So that's all. Thanks for watching and I'll see you next time.